Yes, I'd like to welcome you to the next episode of Crosscut Maker Podcast. And uh, as if you have been listening for the past little while, I pretty much with the podcast, I have been doing only uh, eschatology updates. And last week I mixed in, and I will also today mix in a little theological lesson at the end as well to make sure we stay balanced, that we don't stay uh, keep our hearts too much paying attention to the current events and the prophetic what I call prophetic tracking even though um, I do believe it seems like nothing changes my mind or it, it just is further reinforced each week that we are indeed heading towards uh, the end of the age and the tribulation period preceded by the rapture of the church and of course the updates this week the pat well, I'm doing this on Saturday, November 7th, and so this has uh, been election week in the United States of America, and we still don't have an official winner, but that's pretty much been just absorbed everything. Really, I haven't even honestly heard much about the coronavirus, even though those, those cases are uh, going up. Uh, you haven't even heard much about that, but that's just everything. 24-7 is about vote counting, vote counting, vote counting. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get too much into it. I've been sucked into watching it just like everybody else has. It's almost impossible not to. But at this point, at least, it it's, seems apparent to me that Joe Biden's going to win. And, you know, I'm not even going to get into the voter fraud allegations and everything else. I just, uh, it just appears right now that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. Now, whether Trump actually backs up what he's saying and refuses to concede and you know does lawsuit after lawsuit and who you know it could get ugly as we go through november december into january when uh, the inauguration would be i think it's on the 21st next year 20th or 21st so i mean depending on how adamant adamant uh trump is with fighting and really he really truly believes that he has been there's been voter fraud and he's been cheated that's what he's been saying now i'm trying to avoid making uh even my opinion on that um but regardless it appears that joe biden will be the next president unless something very unusual happens unless either uh, there's a couple there's still four as we as i'm doing this podcast there's four states that have not been declared and Trump would have to win them all, and he's down in, I believe, three of the four now. Even uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania, he has gone down barely. It's like we're talking out of several million votes. We're talking about thousands of votes now, which is very, very fractional. Could be overcome. But all all Biden needs is one. All he needs is Nevada. And Nevada seems to be, of the four, the most uh, likely that he would uh, be able to be declared the winner of that state, which would give him two. I think it would give him two seventy on the on the exact two seventy. So that's been all the news, and as it relates to you know end times, the end of the age, earth pangs, and things like that. Um, a couple ways it could go. Now, obviously, Trump was one of the biggest obstacles to globalism left, and that's where I think a lot of the incredible insane amounts of hatred and desire to get him out from day one is because you have this trend towards globalism 
and he is a, he was he is and obviously he was a national believed in national borders which I believe was appropriate and um, uh, but he he was somebody in the way let's put it that way set aside from all the conservative the Republican Democratic pro-life pro-choice and all those things I think all the how it would fit into eschatology would be that that globalistic national one world government that will come about in the in the beginning of the tribulation period or even building up to it would almost be virtually impossible if Trump is in office because he is the whoever is the president of the United States and currently he is is the most powerful person in the world still even though that's not as not clearly the only superpower in the world anymore but we still are the most powerful nation in the world and so that would be very difficult if he's still in office so if Biden does take office in January then that would obviously would remove a humongous obstacle to this globalistic push which would obviously uh, point towards um, you can see how the tribulational one world rule governance rule political rule would be a lot more likely to happen at least again we're talking about it's going to happen according to God's will, but you can see how that could work itself out in human in human actions. A little more likely if Trump is not there anymore. So that was kind of that's kind of been the big news uh, of just swallowed up everything, not only in the United States uh, but also the whole world. And we had another significant major earthquake. That um, earth, you know, obviously Jesus talked about increase in earthquakes as another sign of the end of the age birth pangs and uh, there was a 7.0 between turkey and greece and there's a pretty significant we've had a lot of increases in earthquakes but not all of them do the damage that this one did it was a 7.0 caused a tsunami and it was a pretty significant event there so that's something worth noting as it refers to eschatology um, also we had what is called a typhoon goni I don't know why they call them uh, typhoons instead of hurricanes. Like we, you know, we call them hurricanes. You know, we had something in the uh, Gulf as well, which we'll get to in a moment. But we had what is uh, called Typhoon Goni last week that went into the Philippines, and it did. It was an incredible storm. It was a Category Five. And I've got this this app that you tap on it. You tap on it, it'll it shows where this tropical systems are and you tap on it and it shows you the current all the data and when I tapped on this Typhoon Goni it had sustained and we're talking about sustained winds of hundred and ninety six miles an hour that's not wind gusts the wind gust it was producing was up to two hundred and thirty six miles an hour I have never once in my entire life seen anything even close to that with sustained winds now the category four uh, hurricane we had in the Gulf. I can't remember which one it was this summer, the strongest one. When I checked its entry point winds at about when it was a category four, you're seeing sustained between, I think it was like one between 145 and 150 sustained, which of course that's, that's going to devastate anything in its path. But this one, it made landfall where it first, I don't think it first hit the Philippines, it hit somewhere else first. It had sustained winds of 196. That's 40. This is almost mind-boggling, you know, uh, strength of a storm. And so they, as the, you know, seems like it never ends with these, with the uh, 
weather systems, the tropical weather systems. They said it was going to be a big year, and of course, I always say when they make their predictions, nobody knows except the Lord. And uh, but yeah, this has been significantly an incredible tropical uh, year. And there was one more uh, tropical. It was actually uh, Hurricane Ada, E-T-A, down in hit hit um, Central America. It flooded out Honduras really bad and it was a category four when it made landfall now it's we're not done with that one it kind of went in Central America hung around there caused a lot of flooding and then it swerved back out to the north east and it's in the Gulf again and it's kind of heading up towards Florida it's supposed to take another pretty hard hook left to the west and it's going to end up in the Gulf and Florida's going to get some pretty significant rain out of this it's not going to be anything like they had down in Honduras but it's going to be, uh, but but I don't know what it's supposed to do after it gets into the Gulf. I mean, according to the tracking uh, model I saw, it, it throws it right in the middle of the Gulf as a tropical storm. Now, whether it's still hasn't have if we have enough warm water out there to produce something to intensify it, you could have potentially another hurricane hit the uh, hit the Gulf Coast, which I think would be number five or six, which is incredible. They just had one a couple weeks ago that hit Louisiana again, a Category Two. Can't remember the name of that one. I think it was Zeta. So you know, it's it's mind-boggling. But again, you know, as believing these are birth pangs, what I say frequently is birth pangs don't turn around; they increase in frequency and intensity. And so that we uh, shouldn't be surprising, but it still is quite quite impactful to see these things happening. Um. Also, over in uh, Israel, there's a couple of events that have happened. Now, again, the elections have a big impact on, on Israel, obviously, because Trump has been highly involved in these normalization agreements. And a couple weeks ago, before the elections, some Arab representatives from the countries who normalized with Israel, the UAE and Bahrain, were uh, they made a visit to the uh, representatives, not their, not their presidents or leaders, but they were treated very poorly on the Temple Mount by the Palestinians. They were they were uh, allegedly spit on, um, things thrown at them, cursed at, and, and this caused the leaders of those nations to call for a consideration of the control of the Temple Mount to be taken away from the Palestinians. Now, now Jordan actually has the control of the Temple Mount, but they have pretty much allowed the Palestinians to functionally do that, to uh, maintain control over that. And this irritated them enough to where there was actually legitimate discussions about taking that away from them, and therefore these these normalization agreements. That and again, how the presidency is going to affect that is is another issue. But these normalization agreements could create an atmosphere where Israel would have their part, and the Arabs, the, and not not Palestinians, but the Arab nations that they're making normalization agreements with, would have their part of the mount, and you and you see this just cooperation going on, and obviously this could lead to what is the real big super sign of the coming tribulation period would be the building of the third temple the third temple is a is the in my opinion the biggest indicator that the tribulation period could could be near that's when i first started really paying attention to about a year ago when they really started to be legitimate talking about the third temple that, that's something that people have been watching for years and so these kind of uh, outshoots of the normalization agreements just kind of is just putting more and more 
uh, pressure on you know the Arab nations, the moderate Arab nations that they who they fear Iran. That's their biggest concern, and they also I think realize that the Palestinians are not legitimately trying to engage in peace talks with Israel. They are just wanting Israel to be eliminated, is their goal. And so these moderate Arab nations that are making these agreements with Israel are seeing that, and and they have they have a significant influence over the Temple Mount and who controls it. And this could be this obviously will be something that, that Israel will get their third temple sometime. And if the tribulation period is coming up, that would be soon. Now I have believed, and I still believe that that ultimately the the building of it will be part of the seven-year peace agreement that the Antichrist makes with them. That'll be kind of their their final, uh, you know, they that'll be the the straw that takes it over the edge where they're like, okay, well, you can have your temple if you agree to all these other things. And I, I would again, I think these Abraham Accords are the process. It's not that you know, nothing that's happened yet, obviously, is the tribulational agreement because it's not for seven years. Um, and but I think it is the process that will lead to it. But there's still going to be some resistance and some negotiating and everything, especially when you're going to have to have the Palestinians involved in that tribulational agreement. There's no way that you would have peace in the Middle East without having the Palestinians part of it. And so uh, I don't know how all of it, obviously the details be worked, up, worked out, but Israel will, I think, part of that deal that would maybe make them give up some things that they're not currently willing to give up right now is that they would receive permission to build their third temple, resume their animal sacrifices. And again, of course, that's just an absolute necessity that would have to happen for the tribulation period. But I think it'll be part of the tribulational agreement. But you can see this process, and maybe it'll happen before. I mean, maybe that won't be. Maybe it'll be something that'll already be in play, that the temple will already be being built. And then along comes uh, the, the Antichrist and the tribulational agreement that would not necessarily even have to include it because it's already in the process of being built. But anyway, so there's there's some movement there, and also in Israel, nearly all of this is some uh, kind of a new thing as well. Is um, oh, I heard uh, I heard the news piece on this, and evidently somebody had uh, the religious groups in Israel, which I didn't know, were have up to uh, up to relatively recently have been against having a presence on the Temple Mount. That they, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just they don't want the conflict with the, uh, with the, the uh, Muslims or Arabs or whatever it is, they, they just didn't consider it to be that important to have, a temple, to have a presence on the Temple Mount. But now nearly all, the report I heard is nearly all of the religious groups now are on board with desiring to have a presence on the Temple Mount. And at the end, what I had heard that they had found something one of the uh, popular rabbis had written a couple years ago and they thought that this guy I don't have his name or anything I think I'm just going off the top of my head here I think he had died recently and they had discovered some of his writings but regardless what I do know is that it was something he wrote about two years ago and they thought he was against having a presence on the Temple Mount but it turned out that he wrote in favor of it and so I guess that has turned um, it has turned that viewpoint of the religious groups towards wanting a presence on the Temple Mount. And again, that plays into the same thing: is that they, in order for 
the third temple to be built, there has to be a pretty strong desire for it to be built. Up until, like I said, not just religious groups, but a lot of, you know, I remember a couple years ago I was in a uh, discussion group with uh, over where near where I live, and it was called uh, Jews and Brews. It was not beer; it was coffee. <laughs> and we, and I just really want to get a perspective on what they believed, you know, theologically and everything else. And and one question we talked about one time was, well. Or do you have a desire for a third temple? And, and pretty much it was no. And I was like, well, how you know? Because Old Testament wise, that's how you, uh, you know, that's how they believe that you get your sins forgiven is by the animal sacrifices, and that's what they would want to do to resume them now, is to have the atonement, the atoning factor for their sins. And at that time, they, you know, the people I was talking to weren't even really overly interested at all in that. Uh, they just thought, yeah, well, we, we don't necessarily need that. We could also just have our sins forgiven by repentance and doing good deeds and, you know, other things was their answer. But they weren't at really even at all interested in having a third temple, the people I was talking to. Again, that was several years. That was like three years ago. But I think the attitude and the uh, viewpoints on that have changed pretty significantly now. Where It would be, it'd be interesting to know if I went back over there and talked to them again about this. How many would have a different viewpoint but it does seem to be a pretty strong desire by uh, Israel to want that Temple Mount back and to be able to begin their third temple and one final thing there is also now that what I did here a couple of the yesterday I think it was or maybe the day before that with the pretty apparent victory of Biden and with Trump leaving now and Trump has been obviously very friendly to Israel moved to the uh, embassy from, I believe it was Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It was to Jerusalem for sure. I'm not sure. I think it was in Tel Aviv before that. And he's done, obviously, these Abraham Accords and he's, the deal of the century has been very, very friendly towards Israel. It's one reason I really have liked what he's done as a president is because of that. Because scripture teaches that those who bless Israel will be blessed. and It's always a good idea. But anyway, he uh, obviously, if, he, if he's on his way out, He'll have a couple months to do some more things, and it'll be interesting to see. And I've also, uh, if he does, if, if these normalization agreements increase in intensity, because you realize instead of having four years and two months, they'll have it two months. So there might be a pretty strong push to get these normalization agreements done, or it might go the other way. Maybe they'll say, well, we know you're not going to be here in two months, so how will what we agree to necessarily not change immediately when Biden takes office? So... Time will tell on that, but also I've heard that that now Israel knows because Biden's not going to be near as friendly as Trump is. Is that they, you know, part of the uh, Abraham Accords was that they had promised to delay their uh, claim of sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, and there's parts in the in Israel that they were going to uh, again they would say exercise sovereignty. Some would say. Um, uh, what's the word for it? It is annex. That's the word. Now they wouldn't claim that word annex. Now just real quickly here, I just while I'm doing this podcast, I just got a flash from my phone saying Joe Biden is the projected winner of the 2020 presidential election after securing Pennsylvania, according to AP and NBC News. So that's not a big surprise, but that's the first time, literally, that was like seconds ago, that it officially has been projected as the declared the president-elect anywhere, and he just did on two, two major sources. So, 
not a surprise. He's going to be the next president. But um, anyway, so Israel had, in the summertime, had really begun to, and they were going to do it. They were going to annex or exercise sovereignty over portions of Judea and Samaria, which obviously would influence the, influence, influence the Temple Mount. But part of that Abraham Accords with uh, the UAE in particular was that they decided to delay that. Well, now I've heard, now that they know that Trump is going to be going out of office, and it's officially now, is um, that they might go ahead, knowing they have two months of cover from Trump, go ahead and do that, get that done, get the noise and all the conflict and the uh, uh, distress that that would cause out of the way while Trump is still president, and then knowing that they likely would not be able to have that same kind of cover from Joe Biden when he takes office. So those are the updates on eschatology. Again, nothing has changed in my mind um, that we are indeed heading towards the tribulation period. And what precedes that, the final global birth thing, is, is Jesus Christ descending from heaven and gathering his church and, and the rapture of the church will precede the tribulation period and it will be the final birth bang. It will be all the confusion and deception and anarchy and everything else going on in the world will just be multiplied incredibly when that event happens. And so what we're looking at are things that ha would happen after the rapture and it seems like those things are being set up. So again, nobody knows the day of the rapture, nobody knows the time, that's very clear. I'll never call a date. Um, but you definitely see what would happen after the rapture being set up even more so day by day day by day and again I don't think there's anybody on this planet that would say that 2020 has been the most incredible unusual year in the history of the world um, at least in our modern times so I don't think there's any doubt about this that uh, we are approaching the end of the age the things that Again, it's, there's been bad times throughout human history, but what, with Israel, desire for the Third Temple, the, the alliances being formed, the, the desire for globalism, the, as we talked about last week, the desire by the Pope for the one world religion, just all these things are falling into place at the same time. And so we look up to the Lord, and it is, a, it is an intense time, but it also should be a glorious time for Christians because the, uh, we could be the generation that live that it is there's only going to be one generation or one set of people and one set of christians that don't even taste death that they are changed and transformed into their glorified bodies while they're standing on their feet or whatever they're doing and we could be seeing that happen in the very near future but only god knows the timing of that specific event all right so that's the eschatology update and like i said i like to do a brief theology uh lesson to encourage us not only to just not completely consume ourselves with uh, eschatology, signs of the times, even though, like I said, I think they're a legitimate discussion right now, an important discussion. And I think some Christians are intentionally burying their heads in the sands sinfully because it's just so obvious what's going on. But that typically is how you view eschatology, what your uh, eschatological bent is. Uh, Premillennials are seeing what's going on but if you don't believe in those events literally happening before the return of the lord then you won't be looking for them all right well i'm going to just briefly discuss the trinity it will be our theological discussion today and this obviously is a very foundational core doctrine to the christian faith and uh, 
it's misunderstood a lot. It when I first got converted, I had no idea about the Trinity at all. Matter of fact, I learned the word from there was a girl checking out at Walmart, and her name was Trinity and had the name tag on. And I said, "Oh, Trinity, that's a nice name." And she goes, "Yeah, I think it means uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Bible." And I thought I'd just become a Christian literally like maybe a month ago before then. And I thought, huh, maybe I'll learn about that. <laughs> and then it took me about six months to get even just a basic grasp of it because it just blew my mind. And I just kept listening to the same lesson over and over. And the one I listened to was R.C. Sproul's lesson on the Trinity. And it's something I highly recommend. The two people I would recommend for in-depth study on the Trinity are R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Ministries, and also James White wrote a book called The uh, Forgotten Trinity. And it's in audio book form now, and you can get it in paperback too. And those are those are the two sources that I have found to be very beneficial. But the Trinity, the definition I give is one it's one God. He is one God, fully shared by three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal, fully divine persons, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have one what, one being of God, and we have three who's. Uh, God's being is unlimited, it's infinite, and can be shared by more than one person, and it is. Now, the word Trinity, a lot of people will say, well, hey, how can you believe in the, in the Trinity? The word Trinity is not in the Bible, and that's true. The word, some people are actually surprised to hear that. Yes, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but where the doctrine comes from is the Bible teaches three things. One, there's only one God. Two, three persons, Father, Son, and Ho Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit are called God, and three, they are in relationship with each other. Therefore, they are distinct from one another, distinguished, and they and they, and they are simultaneous. They're eternally simultaneous. They're in so if they're in relationship with each other, that means they're not. The Father is not the Father at one point, then He becomes the Son, then becomes the Spirit. That they're actually simultaneous. And so those are, those are the th three teachings that that the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. And so one, monotheism. There's, the Bible teaches there's only one God. There's one and true and living God. There's one nature, one being, or one essence. And the verses that you can uh, find those, and they're all more, you know, more than just the ones I'll give, but I'll give some. Deuteronomy 6.4, Isaiah 43.1, Mark 12.29, 1 Corinthians 8.4. All clearly teach monotheism. Monotheism is taught throughout scripture. Now a lot of times Trinitarians will be accused of believing in more than one God. No, we do not believe in more than one God. We believe in one God. That's, that's the foundation of the Trinity is that we believe in there is only one God. But number two, yes we do believe in three divine persons. They are co-equal. So three persons are called God in the scripture. Now obviously God the Father, most people would not refute that he is called God in the scriptures, but just in case, uh, John 8, 18 and 19, John 6, 40, Romans 12.1 are just a few examples of God the Father being called God divine. Um, God the Son, Jesus. John 1, 1 through 3, John 17.5, Philippians 2.6, I think are some of the clear places where, you know, when he is uh, in Philippians 2, he did not, uh, talking about his emptying, his taking on the human nature, he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, just clearly. If you're equal with God the Father, well, then you're God, because you can't be equal with God and not be God. And then, of course, God the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 1 Peter 4, 14, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 are a couple examples of where God the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit is called God. 
So again, there's only one God, but three persons are also called God. Each person is fully God, therefore co-eternal and co-equal. Each person fully shares the one being that is God, not divided into three parts. And so there's, there's one God and there, that, that one nature is fully shared by each of the three distinct persons. So you don't have one third of the being of God the Father, one third of the, the being of God the Son, one third of the being of God the Holy Spirit. The simplicity of God is the uh, attribute that he is not divided at all. So they, he, each person fully shares the one nature, but the persons are distinct. And you leave it there because that's what Scripture teaches. Now, the difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. The subordinate role taken by the Son in his incarnation is voluntary and done out of love, not because he is inferior to the Father. Everything the Son did in obedience to the Father was voluntary because he's equal with God. Now, when we, obey, when we are commanded by God, to obey him we don't have a we can't just voluntarily do it or voluntarily not do it because we are not equal with God we are creatures and we are therefore obligated to keep his commands and, and are punished if we don't but Jesus Christ being equal with God his obedience to the Father was voluntary but a lot of people say well if he obeys the Father how can he be equal well again difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. All right, and three, personal distinction. They're co-eternal. The there are distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And obviously, uh, Matthew 3, 16 and 17, John 14, 26 are the two examples I have written here. But Matthew 3 is the baptism of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, you have Jesus Christ, the Son, coming out of the water. You have the Holy Spirit descending, and you have the Father speaking from heaven. You have them simultaneously interacting with each other. And so this idea that you know he was the Father at one point in time, and then he became the Son, and now he's the Spirit in this age, is clearly refuted by just the baptism of Jesus. And again, in the you know John one, in the beginning was the Word. That's clearly shown to be the one who took on flesh, Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, now, that would mean he's obviously equal with God, but he's also with God. He's distinct from God, the Father. So you see that it's real clear to, the, you know, the, the, the Orthodox Christian teaching is to, to believe in more than one God is heresy. But to believe in less than three persons is heresy as well. And we're talking about simultaneous, eternal persons. If Jesus Christ is God, he's eternal. If the Holy Spirit is God, He's eternal. If the Father is God, He's eternal. And so you cannot have coming in and out of existence if you are God. All right, the three persons have eternally been in relationship with each other. They're simultaneous. The persons have independent centers of consciousness, core personalities. They have independent wills, intellects, and emotions. Yet each will flows out of the fully shared divine nature so they are always perfectly united or in agreement. Now there are some people who will dispute whether God has one will or God has three wills. Now, I do believe the will, and when I'm talking about the will, I'm talking about what a person wants. I do believe that that is a personal attribute. So I do believe there's three wills within the one being of God, but again, that's why I always add, they're always in perfect agreement because that will flows out of the fully shared divine nature. But I still think that each person actually wants that. That the Father loves the Son 
the son loves the father. Those are personal, emotional, willful reactions. Um, so that's not to get, I wrote a different paper on the three wills of God, if you're interested in that, on the website. The eternal son added, wasn't diminished, a human nature at the incarnation to become the God-man Jesus Christ. So only the son, only the son added a human nature. Obviously God the Father did not add a human nature. The Holy Spirit did not add a human nature. Only the Son, only the second person of the Trinity added a human nature to become the God-man Jesus Christ. So, and uh, the opposing heresies on all of these, uh, the opposing heresy to monotheism obviously would be polytheism. They believe in more than one God is heresy. The opposing uh, heresy upon the three divine persons is subordinationism. That is to say, that Jesus Christ is not equal with God, that he's barely highly exalted, but he's not equal with God. He's subordinate ontologically by his nature to God the Father, and that's heresy. He's, he fully shares the one being of God with the Father, and the subordination was voluntary. It wasn't because he was essentially less than the Father. And the, uh, the opposing heresy to personal distinction obviously would be modalism, that he that the Father was the Father, and then he put on a different hat, became the Son, put on a different hat, became the Spirit. And, uh, again, I think it's just the baptism alone of Jesus Christ that is just completely uh, refuted. All right, why it's important. Salvation. Only believing in the true Jesus Christ will save. Any view less than the Trinitarian view is a view that compromises the deity of Jesus Christ, that he's uncreated and fully divine. That's why... Again, you don't have to believe the Trinity to be saved. Matter of fact, I told you when I when I got converted, I had to learn even the word from some from somebody working in Walmart. So I had I would say I was converted, born again, and so I had no understanding of the Trinity, and it took me very uh, quite a while to even get the basics of it. And so, and I was converted, forgiven, and everything else. But as time goes along. Yeah, as a Christian, if you if you study the Word and you come to these conclusions, you, it should be something that you submit to pretty quickly and pretty easily. Uh, and again, not understanding God's trinitarian nature is not easy at all. But I'm saying that a true believer who's born again, I, I, you know, somebody who says they've been a Christian for a long time and they think the Trinity is some kind of a I've heard it called a three-headed monster and other things, very derogatory remarks. It does make me question whether that person's born again. Because that tells me that they under they are understanding the concepts and they're rejecting them, and so that's a whole different view. But anyway, the essential problem with it is it comp if you just if you believe if you don't believe in the trinitarian view, it could just compromises the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ is God and He's uncreated and He's eternal and He's distinct from the Father, which is clear, then you have to have a trinitarian understanding of God. In order to, or it does, it just compromises the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, I have heard and listened to people who reject the Trinity, and it, it seemed like everything else they were saying, well, it was on a YouTube video, this guy was evangelizing. He was uh, street preaching. And he was doing a great job preaching the true gospel and calling people to repentance, and he was calling sin, sin, and he was, you know. And then it was like a half hour in that somebody said something about the Trinity to him. He goes, Oh, I don't believe in the Trinity. I was like, What? I was blown away because he did. He seemed like a, somebody, a humble man, somebody who loved Christ, and I just, at that point, thought, well, maybe this is 
maybe an example of somebody just hadn't understood it yet. Um, but that was kind of surprising. But I think for the most part, when a, when a Christian begins to study the Scripture, he comes to the conclusion that uh, that God the Father and, God, and Jesus Christ are in a relationship with each other, and therefore they're not the same persons. But the, but the clear teaching of Scripture also is there's only one God, and, and, and the Holy Spirit is the third person. So anyway, it does. Kind of, I think if you don't, it, it, it even if you ignorantly as a believer reject the Trinity, you're going to compromise, even though you may not mean to. You're going to compromise the deity of Jesus Christ with anything less than a Trinitarian view. And discernment. It's essential to understand the doctrine of the Trinity to recognize and defend against false teachings about Christ. Every false religion will always have another Christ um, than the other than the true Christ of the Bible. The Mormons, they'll say he's one of many gods. Jehovah's Witnesses claim he's the Archangel Michael. And so there's just, it, if you just have a clear understanding of the of that there's one God and he's fully shared by three distinct persons and they're fully divine, they fully share the one nature, if you just have that understanding, it'll help you in a lot of ways defend yourself against people coming along and claim uh, different things. But it takes time, it takes diligent study, and um, but I hope this is, this has been helpful to just maybe take this understanding because it really when I heard it defined clearly for me it really did when I when I approached scripture after that it really did help me to understand um, what I was dealing with because like I said when I first believed I didn't really know much at all uh, I mean just like I was I was I believed I was converted I was forgiven I was indwelled but I was just just coming out of such darkness that I barely knew anything I just knew Jesus Christ was God and that he was raised from the dead that's pretty much what I knew when I believed and then, as time, you know, I, for whatever reason, when I first believed, I, I had this in my mind that he began, Jesus Christ began at the manger in Bethlehem. I just had, I just was thinking that as a believer, as somebody's born again. But again, immediately when I heard somebody say, you know, teaching that he pre-existed his incarnation, pre-existed that he eternally existed, and then he added human nature in the manger of Bethlehem. I was like, oh yeah, of course. How could it not be? If he's God, he didn't begin at any point in time. He's eternal. So, you just as you go along, you 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 know a true believer will say, oh okay. But again, you you build and you learn. But like I said, when it comes to the Trinity, I do I'm passionate about it and I teach it quite a bit because I think if you understand just the basic definitions and the understandings, then it will help you know to defend against a whole lot of other things. And you can go deep, 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 obviously with Trinity, and you end up dealing with how many wills does he have? You know, eternal functional subordination. Is he still voluntarily subordinate to the Father? And and eternal begottenness and all these other doctrines that are very good to think about and good to process through. Just Jesus Christ having human soul and things like that <laughs> blow your mind open. And uh, and so it's good to go deep and think about those things. But I think if you you definitely would want to have a basic understanding of the Trinity. And again, I'll close with that he is, the Trinity is one God fully shared by three distinct co-equal, co-eternal, fully divine persons, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's as simply as I can put it is with clearness and with clarity, I think. But I also think, I think, all right, if this, using the fewest amount of words, how, would I, how could I define it? I think you could say as one God fully shared by three distinct, fully divine persons. 
I'm sorry, yeah. One God fully shared by three distinct, fully divine persons. Because if you, if you understand uh, the persons are fully divine, well, then you'd understand their equality would be assumed and their eternality would be assumed. But I think it's, I still add co-equal, co-eternal because it, it, those are usually the two things that are uh, challenged about Christ, that he's equal with the Father and that he has existed with the Father for all of eternity with the Spirit. All right, well, I hope this has been helpful in this eschatological update slash theology update. And uh, we'll, it looks like I've been doing these about every couple weeks unless something radically changes. I probably will plan on doing that again. And I like to close all of these with a brief presentation of the gospel. And that is, one, you know, one day we will all face the one true and living holy God. And you need to have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to him before that occurs. In God's great love, he has mercifully made a way. That only happens biblically by repentance confessing your sinfulness and hopelessness from your heart to God and faith, believing the gospel, who Jesus Christ is, truly man and the one true God, and trusting only in his redemptive work. And what is that? That is his perfect sinless life, his death on a cross for the sins of sinners, and resurrection for your salvation. If you genuinely do this, you will be instantly and permanently covered by the righteousness of Christ, and he will have been treated as if he committed all of your past, present, and future sins. If you refuse the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be judged according to your works, and unless you have lived without even one sin like Christ, will end in eternal conscious condemnation. So until next time, this has been the update, and God bless you. I hope this has been informative, and Christ be known.